I remember Dan saying one time, like, this is going to take years to work through. And somehow it didn't really take years. This is Meet the Fam, a podcast series from The Way Church. Meet the Fam is a place for you to meet the community, the people who make up The Way family. I'm Matt Rothy, pastor at The Way Church, and I am joined by my co-host Heidi Zell and our producer, John Boomhofer. Heidi and John, welcome back to season two. Thank you. So nice to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Really excited for our interview today. Yeah, we've had some really great ones this season so far. And joining us on this episode is none other than the Savannah Scheffel. Savannah, thank you so much for being here with us. This episode is one we were looking forward to, Savannah, because not only are you a part of the faith family here at The Way, but you are also on staff here at The Way. You serve as our creative director. And we're going to get into what you do and what that all means in just a little bit. But I need to start with this. Early on when we met, you said, I am never going to work at a church again. And now you work at a church. So what made you say that? And what made you work at a church again? Well, what made me say that was a very negative experience working at a church very unhealthy environment. And I guess a healthy environment is what made me change my mind. Also, money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> opportunities to be creative. Yeah. And a desire to do more of what I was seeing our church do, be more a part of that. But yeah, I was coming out of having worked at a church for about three years. And my husband had worked at a church as well for maybe like five years. And people were kind of dropping like flies left and right. And it started to be like, maybe the people leaving aren't the problem. People on the staff or our congregation? Yes, uh, the staff, also congregation, but the staff, it was just one controversy after the next. And eventually you have to notice who, who the common denominator is there. And it was not the people that were leaving. But yeah, after I had an experience where my, I mean, just to get, straight into it. So I had a lot of stuff happening with my family towards the end of my time working there. And I was basically working remotely for six weeks because I was traveling, spending time with the different people, trying to help mitigate some family stuff that was happening. I was still working. It was just remote. And I guess the senior pastor had noticed that I hadn't been in church on Sundays. And there's no agreement there. You know, you don't, you don't have to go to church there to be on staff. And my boss, who was another pastor on staff, was approached by the senior pastor who wanted to know why his admin wasn't attending church. Now, my husband and I were newlyweds. We were both on staff, and no one on staff thought to check if we were okay. <laughs> no one was concerned about where I was. I hadn't been in the office in over a month, but my not being there for an hour on Sunday was concerning and was viewed as a sign of disrespect and I was really not okay with that because things weren't okay in our family and we did need help. We did need pastoral guidance. But when we, despite having over 10 pastors on staff, when we needed a pastor, there was no one. And so I got a little bit bitter, I would say. <laughs> and I said, I'm never going to work on staff at a church again because I just want to be a part of the body. I don't want it to be about whatever they were making it about because it was not about God. I can assure you of that. 
So I was very keen to not go through that again. And then all of a sudden, here I am, and I work at a church again. <laughs> like, it took less than a year, I think. <laughs> like, you really held out on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, you know, I stood my ground. And, well, one of the things that actually really changed my mind was shortly after we had started meeting with you, Matt, and we did the foundations thing, I had a lot of questions about communion. And you stopped at my workplace, brought me a drink, and brought me a book. And I texted Dan, my husband, and I said, I don't ever want to go to another church where my pastor doesn't have time for me. And yeah, it's just what a difference it makes to have a a good ratio of people to pastor and time (laughs) to people. And that really impacted me because working on staff, being so close to so many of these pastors, no one ever looked out for us. Our premarital counseling ended up being one session with a pastor and his entire family, including his children, were there. So So it was kind of a culture that really didn't make you feel loved and cared for. And before before I ask this, maybe just pause to say thank you for sharing all that. And thank you also for kind of putting your finger on something that I think that our church really is glad about. And that is we kind of embrace where we're at as far as life stage goes, as far as our size goes, and this is who we are. And just finding a lot of positive in that. What personal lessons did you take away from that besides, you know, maybe what you look for in a church, what you look for in a pastor, spiritual or personal takeaways? Some of this is just, there's no real formula. It's just my own stupid human intuition. <laughs> like, But I can remember at that other church just feeling like we would have these Wednesday dinners and sometimes pastors would come. And it was before Awana, which if you're not familiar with Southern Baptist life, Awana is everything. <laughs> Approved workmen are not ashamed, in case you wonder what Awana stood for. But, you know, sometimes pastors would come and they would kind of make their rounds and sit with people. And it just just felt so phoned in to me. And I, I just didn't sit right. I didn't feel like it was authentic. I felt like it was checking a box. And some of that I know was my own. I came into that church probably already fairly jaded because of some stuff from my childhood like, it's, it's really just about the people. And the bigger the church gets, the more likely the business side of it's going to be a little, I don't know, more likely to get sketchy, I guess. When you think about how churches used to be, if you live here, you go to this one. If you live there, you go to this one. Regional geographical things is what yeah. decided where you and, go. You know, I like that we have choice today, but also I think some of that choice comes from having lost focus on what matters, which is gathering with your community and serving Jesus and loving each other. And culture has changed so much since churches back then. Some of this might just be because it's a church plant and we do have to show up every Sunday and put the church together, like physically construct our church. And I think that, yeah, I'm really into like liturgy and like kneeling and stuff like that. It's the ritualistic stuff that has helped me a lot in my faith of just— like even communion and even baptism, it's a physical act that really helps put you where your heart needs to be and put the focus on God. And I think us, as much as I get sick of wrapping up cords and plugging stuff in, <laughs> Don't I, we all? Think, I think that's such an important thing for, for my worship because I was coming from a place where at that church, we had everything. We had everything we needed. 
There wasn't anything we couldn't afford. And we had people that did that for us. And there's something about putting it together yourself and needing each other, actually needing each other for that, that I think is a huge part of what it takes to build a community, quite literally. I'm thankful you kind of took us there. I did want to talk to you about some of the more theological things that were eye-opening for you as we went through the foundations class. You mentioned communion, and I dropped off a book about communion to you. Let's talk a little bit about your experience going through what is our membership class called Foundations. You can start with communion or just anything else that you thought was a big takeaway for you from that. I think the thing that really stuck out to me with Foundations is that I've never had a pastor that took the time to know what I believed and to give me biblical reason to believe it and to make sure he knew where I was at spiritually. Like I've, I'd never had a church where the leadership was genuinely invested in where I was in my walk with God and how I came to my beliefs and where I should go with my beliefs or even just challenged my perspectives. I hadn't really experienced that. I hadn't been to a church that had a good way of laying that out and practicing that. So that was just in general, it was very interesting to me. I'd gone to two churches that had like a membership class, but it was mm -hmm. so big and so vague. It didn't feel like you were getting together to A, hang out, I guess, and B, actually like study God's word. It was more like, and this is kind of what we do here and we'll give you a rose on Sunday if, <laughs> if you want to join. Just to pause on that thing for a second, because I, I feel a lot of pressure because our foundations class is multiple weeks long. It is not a one afternoon thing or even like, hey, just come for a couple few sessions things, figure out what this church does. It's multiple weeks long. It's called foundations and it is really deep biblical stuff that we're studying. Sometimes I feel pressure because we live in a busy world where people have competition on their priorities and their evenings and what they do with their free time to think, okay, how can we make this more accessible to people? And by accessible, I mean easier for people to be a part of, but you really keyed in on some things that you just can't find a substitute for. Getting together, going in deep with specific doctrinal questions and really finding out where people are at. And that's something that isn't maybe a stated goal of me teaching the class, but it is really one of my favorite parts of the class is we have a wide spectrum of people that come into the class that have taken the class from all sorts of different backgrounds or no spiritual background. You get to bring it all up and, and talk about all of that. Yeah. There were so many things that just like, oh wait, why do I believe this? And there's so many things that I was like, wait, people believe this? <laughs> like, and I considered myself fairly, I don't know, grounded in my faith, I think. Closed communion was, that was kind of the big one for me. Cause I, I mean, I knew like Catholic churches do it. Like I knew if I went to a Catholic church, I wouldn't take communion there. But I grew up predominantly Baptist and they give you the, the talk of, we'll drop dead or whatever. Oh. <laughs> that might be a dramatic. <laughs> That's an overdramatization, but but what you're getting at is okay, if you abuse the Lord's Supper, most Christian would would say don't do that. Treat it with respect. And I thought, you know what, maybe I could explain it for people what close communion is, but I'm going to put you on the spot and say, Savannah, you explain it because this is something that you've thought deeply about, we've studied deeply together, and then you read a whole entire book 
about it that I have shared with more than one person after you read it and recommended it to kind of get people to help wrap their heads around it. So putting you on the spot a little bit, but I, I think I've talked now long enough to give you time to come up with an answer, <laughs> but how would you, how would you explain close communion to, to a friend? Well, I would first probably state the importance of the church you attend and knowing each other and being invested in each other's lives. And that obviously includes their spiritual walk. Whereas a lot of other churches, you know, if you just visit on a Sunday, you can take communion if you feel like you're right with God. But when it talks about like, you know, it's kind of the pastor's responsibility to make sure that no one drinks judgment upon themselves. And it's it's so important to actually have, like if we're supposed to have a relationship with God, aren't we supposed to have a relationship with our pastor who stands up in front of us every Sunday and stands up in front of us in other ways, not maybe as literal as on Sunday mornings. So closed communion is a, is a way of making sure that you're in communion with the people around you, with their beliefs, with their you know, where they're at. Because let's say I had, like, I don't know, I believed Jesus was just a prophet or something. And I was drinking communion. You keyed on it, right? Like there's a responsibility for the pastor. There's a responsibility for all of us, not just the pastor, to to say, hey, this is a meal that Christ instituted that, first of all, there's a union going on with the bread and wine, with Christ's body and blood. Then there's a union taking place with, with Christ's body and blood and his sinner saints, his redeemed children who are taking it. But there is a third union taking place with those we're standing shoulder to shoulder with as we take this. And that means something. And where you're going with uh, Jesus just being a prophet statement is, yeah, you could say to a group of people, hey, do y'all believe in Jesus? And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, I do. And, and yet that doesn't, mean we're all in unity with together and the way scripture talks about it in first Corinthians, specifically chapters 10 and 11 is that, that this is a, this is a meal to be celebrated with because we're in unity with one another. And when we're in unity with one another, an expression of being in unity with one another and don't pretend you're united when you're not instead have really meaningful discussions about what God's word says and, and how we can grow towards unity with one another. And that, and that's really what that's about. Yeah. It is. It's funny now that I've been going here for a while. And I just, when I think about my last church, literally anyone can just walk in and take communion. It's like, it's not even really referred to as a sacrament there. Just the importance of it feels so lost because it's not being held in this real, like, high regard. You know, once a quarter they do it, anyone can take it. There's, you know, rules set up. But just the idea of serving someone communion when you don't know where they are, you don't know if they're, I don't know, living a double life or if they're hiding something deep down. Just Because if someone is there and they decide not to take communion and it's maybe a small church and everybody knows them, they're going to be like, what'd they do? Like... <laughs> And so I like the idea of it being, just being known by my community and my pastor and, and the idea too that we show up early to take it because I think that's, that's a little something extra. Again, like showing up and literally putting your church together before you meet. It's kind of like that. It's a really good perspective on setup. 
Because a lot of us who have been oh. here for four years probably haven't been thinking of it that way for a while. Well, I think, <laughs> Myself I think, included. I think what you, I'll, I'll connect what you just said about how previous churches you attended didn't really even consider the Lord's Supper a sacrament in the sense of it being a sacred act instituted by Christ that really gives forgiveness and should be taken and considered in a sacred way. Let me connect that to what you said about the setup. And we, we come, what time, John, does everyone get there on a Sunday? 8.30. So, you know, hour and a half before we start worship, people are there setting up, some people even earlier than that. And us setting up or you being on a setup team is not what makes you right with God. <laughs> it's not that. But there are, are a large part of Christianity in America where, where people, that that is their service to God. That's what they do. They're in a church for that, for service, for service opportunities, for being in church and serving. And a mentor of mine and, and someone who who's really a big part of this church, he said like oftentimes in non-sacramental churches, the setup and the service is like a sacrament to so many people. I also think there's, there's a lot of guilt almost that's placed on people for, you know, you need to be serving, you need to be doing this or that. Like everybody needs to be on either the food committee or the, you know, I volunteer once a month to take the trash out at church or something. You got to do something or you're not a real Christian. Yeah. Is the impression that's often given. Yeah. It's, it's a, it feels very legalistic. It feels very much of the law kind of. And I think that's why some people don't like liturgy. They don't like kneeling. They don't like that stuff because it just feels like a bunch of rules you have to follow. Whereas for me, I don't know. I need structure. I have, I have ADHD. Oh, so. I like that structure. It helps me get in the posture of serving and having a good attitude and receiving and giving. And yeah, it's been helpful for me. So that was something that was kind of surprising to me when you, your husband, Dan and I sat down for the first time and we're kind of talking and things that you enjoyed about being here. You were visiting very frequently at that time and you said you enjoyed the liturgy. Do you think that is a you personally thing or, and I'm kind of asking all of you guys this, is that something you guys note generationally or is that just a personal thing you would say, a desire for a structured worship time? Before you answer that, did you grow up with the liturgy in your churches? I actually did not because I grew up mostly in a Baptist church. And then in high school, we did go to a Presbyterian church, a PCA church, and there was a little bit of liturgy there, you know, like the Westminster Catechism every now and then, you know, what is the chief end of mankind to glorify God and enjoy him forever? We'd say things like that. There was, you know, unison scripture reading. And then sometimes maybe the Apostles' Creed or something. But after I graduated high school, I went and lived with my brother and he was attending an Anglican church at the time. And I got really into it there. And I think some of it, you know, I'm a bit of a writer, a bit of a poet, I guess, and sometimes I feel a lot of pressure to have that in my walk or my relationship with God. So I think sometimes having someone else having already done that work <laughs> can be, it can take that pressure off of me and I can just revel in the goodness of the words. I also think I'm kind of a daydreamer in like a, even this room, it's like, I like that my couch looks like it was in the Brady Bunch. Like there's just things that, feel like something special to me. 
And I think because if everything is just a big play, I like that my church has, (laughs) there's parts for me in lines, you know, it's kind of, I just need it to feel like something, to feel like a ritual, to feel like it has, like it's tied into something. And some of that's probably discomfort with a lot of the, you know, very hip, cool churches. I just, some of that's maybe discomfort with some of that stuff. And then other stuff is maybe just being a writer and liking that stuff. And then maybe being, um, as my English teacher would say, an old soul. I think the perspective of the liturgy taking pressure of you having to know the right words to say or the right things to do at certain times in church is, is interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of it like that, but it makes so much sense. Christianity is about you don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all for you. And I think that's such a interesting look at it in our worship services. You don't have to know the right words. Jesus has given you all the right words to say. And I do think sometimes a lot of people feel pressure to perform. I think that's why people are uncomfortable praying in front of people or or other things like that. So Savannah, let's get specific into what you do here at The Way because part of uh, this conversation is maybe an introduction between you and people at our church coming just out of the pandemic is when you started to work for us as our creative arts director. And you said it before, some of the factors that led you to want to work at a church again, where you were a fan of maybe the church culture, the leadership, and just how it was a positive thing for you. And not to mention that we pay you for what you do. And maybe I'll start with that and then just kick it to you to ask you maybe some of the things that you enjoy about about being on staff here. But the reason why we we do, we have a full-time pastor and myself here, and then we have two part-time staff members here. John is our worship director and Savannah is our creative director. And both of those things are areas of ministry that we really value because John does basically everything that happens on a Sunday and so much more there. But Savannah, in in your area, you do things in terms of digital outreach, website design and outreach, and just artistic outreach through, you know, digital mediums. And that is something that we really value kind of as we look to do worship, outreach, and just ministry in a you know, post-pandemic, very digitalized world. And so recognizing the need for that, but also the real value you provide is something that we were we were always as a church so so willing to put our money where our mouth is and, and have someone that is dedicating their talents to that. So that that's a little bit about what you do for us, but maybe put it in terms where you find enjoyment or fulfillment out of what you do here. Well, I got into graphic design, like I guess about three years ago, and I got hired to do it at another place before I knew how to do it. (laughs) But they took a chance on me. They thought I'd be good at it. And it's something that I really have grown to love. I, until last week, had three jobs in it. Now I have two. And I love the idea of just, you know, creating art out of things and getting to do that in a scriptural setting has been nice because it, I think, helps me pay better attention to the sermons. It helps me think a little more creatively about little things. And Matt, you're always like, 
so what's the red dot for? And I'm like, it's just an artistic, it doesn't have any meaning, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it always pushes me to try to make everything have more meaning. I've enjoyed that. And I, you know, social media culture is not something that I enjoy, but it does seem to be something I've been unfortunately put on this earth to do. And I have one of those personalities where I allegedly can see all sides of things. And I think that's maybe part of it. I do an okay job at viewing things from other people's perspectives. So, I don't know, I think I had kind of mentioned earlier being very sentimental and trying to make everything special and feel like something, whether I grew up with it or I read a book that reminds me of it. Like when we had the way day, it took me so much longer to do that art than it should have because no matter what I did, it just looked like it was for a jousting tournament. (laughs) Which would have been okay. It's just insane to me that you can pick three colors and have a few different shapes and layouts and it how does this look like a medieval sport? Like, I don't, I do this for a living and I don't understand why it feels like a jousting thing. (laughs) So it took me a while to like rein it in and get it to a place where it was like, okay, this doesn't look like a threatening medieval event. Like, it's not a Renaissance fair. So I, I don't know, I've had fun with stuff like that. I really just enjoyed that. When I worked at the other church, I was an admin and my, one of the jobs I kind of ended up doing a lot was my boss would always ask me, like, if you were new or if you were walking into the situation, how would you feel? Because I was homeschooled for the majority of my life. I have bad social anxiety, and I'm a very uncomfortable person in general. So I'm always kind of like, okay, how would someone who might feel this way feel walking into this building? How would someone feel if they were handed this card and they saw a picture of these two people and this time and date? Is this enough information? Is this too much information? Are they going to overlook everything because it's just too much info? Or are they going to be like, nope, that has bad vibes because it reminds me of Game of Thrones or something? I don't know. I kind of enjoy like the psychology behind the design and then also the finding a way to incorporate spirituality into that. One of the coolest things is just how the gospel can be communicated through art. And you're an artist and, you know, a little bit I'd like to talk about music, but just how music communicates the gospel. You mentioned, you know, stained glass windows earlier in a conversation this evening, how that communicates the gospel. And then that's really what you are striving to do in whether it's, you know, our sermon artwork or it is our graphic design outreach for our The Way Day here. Like, how can I communicate the gospel through this artwork? How can I communicate a winsomeness of the gospel to that for someone who may be unfamiliar with church life or the gospel in general? Here's a question I have both for Savannah and Heidi, because Heidi, you served in Savannah's role prior to her taking that on, and then your work responsibilities grew, so you looked to transition out of that. But both of you have expressed kind of that tension between social media culture. Is that what you called it, Savannah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Social media culture, which is what it is, and maybe you can put some meat on that vague statement in a little bit, but that, and then also how it is a tool that a lot of churches do use and should use to do outreach and do ministry. And this comes during a week where Facebook is in the news a lot because of a Facebook whistleblower talking about maybe detrimental practices that Facebook has let go on for too long. So there is a negative aspect to social media and you're hinting at that, but maybe 
speak more on that tension as you talk about the job that, that both of you have done quite well at? Well, from my perspective, I guess, with as long as humanity has existed, social media has been around for like 0.1% of that. So it is extremely new, but it has changed absolutely everything. And it has completely changed how our community outreaches, it's completely changed how we talk to people, how we learn who people are, how we have friends, how we travel, how we spend family time. It has affected pretty much every area of specifically, say, American culture. Because even if you don't have it, well, everyone else in your life does. And they're maybe less present or you feel left out of certain information or it has changed everything. And it is so incredibly new compared to how long we've been here. And it's just... We're not built for this. We're not built to have a circle that big. We're not built to see that much of people's lives. We're not, you know, depression rates that are getting worse. Suicide rates are going up. Like everything, we know this is bad for our mental health. We know that it's maybe good for staying in contact with my friend from camp when I was 12. For example, Dan's uncle passed away last week. It was great that we could update everybody and ask for prayer and tell them what was going on. That's awesome. But the majority of the time, I feel like social media is hurting people's perception of themselves and the perceptions of other people. And it's just wearing down humanity and community. And we're just, we're not built for this. And it, it grew very, very fast. And I fear it greatly. <laughs> I agree. I think that you, you said it right. The we're not built for this is how I feel about it as well, because we have ways to think about things that are happening. And then we have the ways that we're supposed to react to the reaction of it. And a lot of that is coming at us at lightning speed, because when you scroll up, you're getting new perspectives like immediately, but no one else is actually with you most of the time while you're reading these things. So you can say things on there that have a far-reaching effect on people because a lot of people will see it, but you're not actually seeing their reactions. You're not having a conversation with them. And it can be a really good tool to keep connected to your family and to your friends who are far away from you, but it can also be kind of this isolating environment for a lot of people. And, and we're on it every day. I mean, I personally am on Instagram several times every single day. Yeah. You look shocked, Matt. <laughs> but I think that's pretty normal. I, I think it's yeah, just, right. it, it, is, is it is the is FOMO. Normal, yeah. And it's it's just like, this is what I do now is sort of keeping in contact with people. But I'm also just trying to keep up with what's happening around me, but not what's literally right in front of me or happening in my mm -hmm. life specifically. I've never done your job, nor did you ask for my opinion, Matt. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to throw it in here. No, uh, this is time. I know that I've always felt better when I take a break from social media. Any friend who asks me, I'm just like, yeah, just stay off of it, even though I have a hard time doing that. But at the same time, there's good to be done sharing God's word on social media. And it is the hard line because we know that it's not good for people's health, mental health in most cases. But the reality is, is so many people are there. So many people are looking at, at stuff and we can have them looking at God's word 
a community of real people that they can join and be a part of. And I think that's one of my favorite things that you guys have done in your jobs is I love the community that we have at our church. Most people will tout their community, but I, I'm really, I love the friends that we have. I love uh, the conversations, the small groups that we have, and you guys have shown it in a really authentic light, at least from my perspective on social media. And I think that's a really cool thing. Let me ask you guys about the future of that because all of you guys have hit on that tension of there is not good things here, but the church can do good things. And, and several other individuals and organizations do wonderful things on social media. So not, not saying <laughs> that as well, but you guys have the floor because you think about this often it is your job. If you got to like kind of write the rules or, or write the future of how churches go about this, what would you say? And as you think about this, maybe I'll, I'll give you this background. Is it is it an area where you go, okay, it's here. As far as we can tell, it's going to be here to say, so use it, churches, innovate, because that's what communication and humanity has always done. They found more, better, different ways to communicate. Or would you say... No, maybe this is an area where we think more critically and step back from. Again, tension, maybe you don't have the right answer, but I'll, I'll say this, and I've joked about this with both of you, I don't have to be on social media because you guys are, and so I'm not by and large. And I am happy about that. You know, I still look at Snapchat because that's how my family shares pictures of my children and my nephew, and that's wonderful. But after that, I'm, I'm not really on social media. And so I don't feel a lot of <laughs> negative pressure. So take it away. What, what would you recommend for not just this church, but the church using it going forward? I went so far as when I was doing this for the way that I would say sometimes to you, Matt, like, maybe we should consider stop stopping our Facebook page. Like, maybe we should just get off of this because we know... Social media is causing higher rates of depression and we don't want to be a part of it. I think that's kind of an extreme take on it. And I know that you have pushed back for, for good reasons. But I think that the most important thing that the church can do, or really any community, is to get people off of social media. The things you can do on, on social media to make you stop scrolling and get off of that, as in get out into your community, meet with people, you know, small groups, outreach opportunities, volunteering opportunities, whatever it is, make that known there so that people can see it and it's in front of them, but then give them a good reason to stop scrolling. That's no, I think that's, that's I think that's really insightful. And it recalled maybe a offhand comment I made in the sermon this past weekend that there is nothing wrong with online worship. Online worship is a wonderful blessing that we have because of technology. But in a side comment, I kind of compared it to online dating. And I just asked, how many of you know a couple who says, yes, we dated online, we got married, and now we've never spent time together in person. We've just, you know, communicated over FaceTime for the past six years. You don't know anybody like that. And the reason is because online dating, just like online church or online church social media is all designed for a different purpose. And that is real in life relationships. And I think if you keep that in mind and use that as kind of your decision-making lens through which you think about what you do online, how you post online, what you say online, maybe there could be a different 
benefit there and maybe your your social engagement might look a little different, feel a little different. I mean, it is interesting that the goal is to get them off of it, but you have to be on it right. to do that. Exactly. It's it's like this is how we communicate now primarily in a community. Yeah, it's 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 overwhelming. Like it is just troubling to me. <laughs> it's exhausting <laughs> at times. <laughs> but it's one of those things like I'm I am like very cynical and jaded towards a lot of church culture. I find it very annoying. I and <laughs> no, this is just great because these are these are the ladies that are tasked with like really making our church culture clear. And John, you said it before, both of them do it in a really authentic way for our church. That's because Savannah you do it now, Heidi, you did it. You you put a lot of time and thought into it. So I, I just laughed there because I, I need to ask, maybe for people who don't think as critically, I think you said cynically, about church culture, what is it that, that you are skeptical about or cynical about? And And this is church culture in general. We're not pointing out any one church or anything like that. But what do you see as things that kind of make you, can I say cringeworthy? Is that, yeah. yeah, what do you find cringeworthy? I think there's kind of two ends to the spectrum. One is like, we're, we're a church that's been in this community and we've never grown, we've never changed. And it's always kind of the same sermon every Sunday. Like just these people who they don't have any outreach and it's all just very inward focused. And this is probably a lot of predominantly elderly congregations in towns like the one I grew up in. But then on the other side of the spectrum, there is people that I feel are just inauthentically enthusiastic. I am sorry, but when there's like 11 people up on stage leading a song and they're all jumping at the same time and clapping, it is like, if you were in high school, no one would think you were cool. (laughs) Like, this would be the glee club that, like, oh, my gosh, look at those theater kids. And I say that as a theater I was gonna kid. Say, we're both theater yes. kids, so no shame on So people. just the <laughs> fact that those are now the people who've all coordinated their outfits. They have, a you know, a wardrobe specialist. It's just like, what is this? You all just happened to jump at the same time. I, I don't know. I, so I struggle with that. The ones that are almost too outreach focused. And and again, I am jaded. I am cynical. I have a history with both sides of the spectrum, I think. Even like modern worship, there's just so many of the songs. If you just change Jesus or Lord to baby or something, it's just like creepy. And I don't know. It just, it just weirds me out. And that's one of the reasons I think I like liturgy because it's so biblically based and it does not sound creepy except when we're all saying it together and the yeses are like (laughs) (laughs) well as you kind of talk about this tension between what we do on social media and also what we do in person and that is through social media we try to invite people to live events savannah john you and i had a conversation just last week at our staff meeting where we were planning out the last quarter of our kind of event schedule. And we kind of had a moment where we just talked about events as a whole in a post-pandemic world. And Savannah, you had some interesting comments just on how 
for better or worse, people aren't gathering together in ways that they used to. And it doesn't matter if it's a church event. It doesn't matter if it's a concert. It doesn't matter if it's at their fitness place or if it's at their favorite restaurant. People are gathering together differently. Maybe share some of your thoughts there that that you took away from our conversation or just on what we try to do as churches where we gather together in person. I think there was it was an interesting, almost a cycle that happened where whenever we had to stay home, people felt like, you know, their entire livelihood was just taken from them. And then, I mean, for me, I'm a bit of an introvert. I kind of enjoyed it. I got to do a lot of puzzles. I've now done all the puzzles we own. <laughs> but then it kind of stayed that way for more than two weeks. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but it wasn't just a two-week shutdown. <laughs> And people got a little bit stir-crazy. Other people really made the best of it. The bread culture got wild. And it really impacted everybody in similar and different ways. There was a lot of overlap. And then once things opened back up, it was like people kind of, a lot of people went wild. And they were so excited. There was great attendance. And then things kind of started shutting down again. And then now that it's kind of open again, people aren't really showing up to things. And there's almost a comfort level people have developed with staying home. This is just kind of how things are because we fully adapted with Zoom. You don't need to go to the movie theater anymore to see new movies. You can sit on your couch and not spend $30 on popcorn. And the popcorn will be better. I don't know if there's any big movie popcorn fans here. I not, agree. Not really my thing. And I mean, so Dan, for example loves to go to the movie theater. He thinks it's a blast. I don't like to go. It's cold. It's too loud. And it's not comfortable. And I'm surrounded by strangers. That doesn't sound like fun to me. So there's people like me who is just like, I don't have to do that anymore. I can just watch that movie here. And so when it comes to church events, it's like families don't have to bring their kids out to stuff like this because they can do VBS online in their house. And Mom and dad don't have to drive and take them there. I think we got really comfortable not gathering and we found kind of new ways of gathering, whether it's through live streams or Zoom or just honestly becoming disconnected enough with your community to not miss it. It's not something you would go to anymore. That's something that I've kind of noticed with even just playing music, with shows I've noticed it. And some people, you know, are high risk and very afraid or being very cautious. But even when there's social distancing and masks in place, I think people really got out of the habit of showing up. I think nobody wants to ever go back again to truly, you know, isolated at home by themselves stuff, right? Nobody wants that. But at the same time, people do want to pick and choose how they engage socially and together together again. Yeah. And I I think it's kind of an object in motion stays in motion thing. Mm -hmm. And for people who did go to everything, brought their family or their significant other to everything. That was how they lived their life. And then when they had to stop, they just, they're not in motion. They don't do that anymore. I, I agree with that sentiment. I think doing things, extroverted things for a lot of people takes a lot of effort, a lot of sometimes mental gymnastics to get yourself to go do this thing. And when you shut that part of your brain off, that exercise, you don't exercise that anymore. And now there's these opportunities coming back up, whether it's to go to church, go to a small group, come to this fun event. You've just been not doing anything for so long. It's just, you just don't. You don't even think about it. 
you're like, why would I go do this? I have not been doing anything for so long. So it's hard. I mean, I think realizing that for people too, and how do you motivate? We're not selling anything, you know, but we want people to be here because we think it's, we know it's good for you, like to be a part of the community, to, to come and hear God's word. The object in motion stays in motion, object at rest stays at rest. I think that rings true for this this time in our, our culture and how do we get people engaged again. Mm-hmm. Well, the timing of your comments were really helpful to me and our conversation that we had in our staff meeting last week was really helpful just because we just kicked off a sermon series called To Gather together. And over the next couple of weeks, short commercial here is if you didn't hear those sermons, listen to the ones where we're talking about what it, what it means from a biblical perspective to gather together in worship in small groups around fellowship and also to gather together around communion. And as you think about those things, there is benefit there scripturally. And we can even say, sociologically, we know there's benefits there. And so there's nothing wrong with kind of rethinking the ways you gather together again in public, especially as we are still very much, and I think majority of people would argue living through a pandemic, think about how you engage publicly and in large group gatherings, but also assess the risk, right? Assess the risk of not doing that and assess maybe the reasons for why you're not doing that. And I think both of you hit on like the example of like, oh, it's that much harder to get your kids out of the house. And as a parent of two small children, I know that, right? And so I respect that, but also look at it and go like, okay, it's easier to not, but what am I missing out on? What is my family missing out on? What are my children missing out on for not being together with people in community? And and that's just from a family perspective. I think for young married couples from a single perspective, those thoughts and considerations all apply. I had this conversation with, I think it was the our worship band the other day because we were going through a devotion and you feel those things when you have, uh, w- whether it's a small group or it's a, a church event or, you know, like I'm the worship director, so I'm involved in a lot of these things. And you feel this like low level or sometimes high re- level resistance to be like, man, I really don't want to do this today. I'm, I'm feeling tired or just not like mentally I'm not there. I don't want to engage with other people. But there, I can't even remember a time where I went and did something with people from my church, whether it was a small group, whether it was worship band, where I got done and I was like mad that I followed through on it. Like every time it's been positive. I mean, there's not many other things in my life I could probably say that about, but that I, that stuck with me and I, I've thought about that. And I think what you're talking about is is thinking about what is the risk of not doing those things. You know, during COVID, you had that part of your brain taken away from you. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to consider it even. And so now just being conscious of, oh, this opportunity is in front of me. What would it mean for me and my family? What are the benefits? I think that's really helpful. I'm really glad we had that conversation because that's putting the finger on, I think, a lot of what people are feeling and maybe haven't stopped to talk about or even think about. I definitely haven't thought about it in that way, but I definitely do that where I just choose which things to not attend and hope that people will cancel plans so that I can just, I mean, not like my my good friends, not the people in this room at all, but that I would have to you know, that I wouldn't have to do any work to leave my house really. But like you said, I mean, going to small group every week, like when we're off for a month, I'm like, oh, 
That's right. I haven't like talked about the sermon with anybody for a while. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, I find it that I'm missing that. Yeah. Well, you guys are all in a small group together. I'm the not, best one. I'm not privileged to be a part of that small group. Maybe say a thing about what the value of that group setting has been for you as young people, both generally and specifically to the to the concept of gathering together with other Christians. Whether it starts out this way where everybody's your friend in the group or not, we've grown some really strong friendships that then lead to moments and interactions outside of scheduled small group. And so you get to do things with your friends. And these are the same friends that you talked about God's word with. So it's just super valuable to have those people that you share these things with, you share God's word with, they get to share it back. And then you get to like, kind of we're talking about with, with a building, you get to live life with them in this community. And I think that's really important and not something that I've had other places in my life and other churches I've been in. Yeah, I think it's been kind of the most tangible side of the church for me, at least going to the way it's been the most tangible and practical because it is like, like I look forward to it because it feels like I'm just getting together with my friends, but then we also do talk about God and the Bible and the sermon. I feel very fortunate to have stumbled into that particular small group. It's been it's been a really good mix of people, I think. And it's obviously no coincidence, but I'm pretty sure this is what it's about and what we're supposed to be doing. I think this is I think this is the church. I think to almost everybody in our group, I would say feels comfortable texting somebody outside of our group chat if they need something or if they if got they something want sweet potatoes. if they want sweet potatoes <laughs> they got sweet potatoes to unload on you they're going to offer those things up or offer help or or like hey we're going to do this fun thing you guys want to hang out and that's been really cool yeah for me it's 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 sort of an unfamiliar thing because growing up in the midwest the center of the the wells land as we could call it i i know so many christians there but i also know a lot of people that i spent most of my free time with that were not churched and didn't have any thoughts about it really. So coming to a new place and not knowing really anybody here except for a couple to find people who were my age, who also thought critically about the word and wanted to talk about it and wanted to encourage each other. That's just been totally invaluable. I mean, like it's supportive to my everyday life. And I mean, I don't know if this is selfish, but it's sort of validating to know that there are other people, like-minded individuals that care about that stuff too. It's been very supportive. You hinted on music. Can we, can we talk a little bit about music? Because Savannah, (laughs) you are, you are a gifted musician who not only has that as a big part of your life personally, but also it's a gift you use to serve in our church from time to time. And you're a very talented singer. And I recall that one of the first times that I think you did sing in worship with our worship band, I said to John, maybe after some time had gone past, I go, Hey John, why doesn't Savannah sing more? And John said, and you guys tell me if I'm getting the story correct here, but you, you want to take it away, I John? I can tell okay, you, I'm right, pretty right, sure right. what I said <laughs> is that Savannah has always felt pressured to to do worship, to sing for worship in every church you were ever at. And so I was kind of, you know, not trying to put that pressure on you. And I think you told Matt something different. You might, you might have told, here's my memory. My memory is that you said something to the effect of, 
I really enjoy singing specific types or genres of worship music and we don't always sing that music here. And, and you kind of alluded it with that, your last comment about just, you know, how Jesus can be substituted for baby or, you know, any other kind of sentimental love name in a lot of modern worship music. You, you can even tell us about what your preference is for worship music or just how you see our worship music. Yeah. Take it away. Well, I will say for the most part, I do enjoy the songs that we do. I, yes. Is that I just because I'm sitting right here? Yes, because okay. I'm looking right at John. No, I think they're very tasteful. I think they're, and we do a lot of older hymns. I grew up with that. I'm partial to it, I think, because, again, they do feel kind of like liturgy. And I think, you know, we used to have, like, Bach and Beethoven writing our church music. Now it's no shade, but Chris Tomlin. And it's like, I just—but it's written to be accessible. But what I don't understand is, I mean, back then, Beethoven and Bach kind of were accessible. They were the only things that were accessible. Yeah, like, True. so it's, it's weird how things— develop and evolve over time to the way it is now. But I, I'm particular about my melodies and I, you know, I write and I love old country and Ella Fitzgerald. So maybe some of it is vanity, but also you grow up in a small town, you sing well, it's, oh, you got to sing in church. And I grew up in churches where we had special music every Sunday. There was always someone that sang for the offertory and there was always someone who sang for special music. So it was very, it was almost like a rite of passage. And it was something I felt a lot of pressure to do. It made me uncomfortable. And then I haven't really enjoyed a lot of modern worship music. And the church I was at prior, that was the stuff that we were doing. And it's all just very, like, I'm kind of a professional and I can't even belt that high. And now we're asking our congregation to sing what is clearly meant to be a, you know, vocal performance monster piece, solo. Yeah. Like, it's just weird. So at my other church, I mean, I would get, like, I my stomach would get so upset. I was so sick every time I had to perform. or Because that's it was a performance. It wasn't singing together in worship. It was like, I had a big number that Sunday. I had to lead this song. And it, oh my gosh, I would get like the stomach acid, the burps, I'd be like miserable. And I never once worshiped at that church because of it. It just. Like you mean while you're leading songs? Or, yeah, yeah, I never. And I it, I do get very nervous specifically for church music. And I, I think some of it's just weird childhood stuff where it's just like the stakes are too high. This is my, I have to do well, you know, for my mom or whatever. Like there's that side of it. And then there's like, this feels like a performance, but it's not. And I don't know how to do this thing where everyone's depending on me and then also feel the words while I do it and be a part of worship. John, Savannah, and Heidi, all three of you are very regular members of our worship band. How do you guys kind of balance that in the way that we do worship here where it is a worship band leading the worship music versus performing the worship music. How, how do you guys think about that, John? How do you, how do you talk to your worship band about how that? Do, how we lead the team is, the goal is, is never to be a performance, is always to supplement and to, to be the backbone of congregational singing. So while I love that people really enjoy Savannah when she leads and, and, and compliment her vocal skills and her guitar playing and stuff, 
I would love for people to to be like, oh, did you hear everybody? Or this guy singing behind me was singing so loud, it was so annoying. I would love to hear that. But we're blessed with a ton of really good musicians, and I think that makes my job pretty easy. But what we want to do is is provide uh, a landscape for our congregation to sing together in worship, to sing the words together in worship, and to really meditate on that. And so what we try to do is we pick keys that are easy for the leader who's leading because you have to be able to lead the song so the congregation can follow you but also that's friendly to a congregation and also just making sure we we never talk about it like it's performance when we're in rehearsal we're always thinking about what we want the congregation to do what the goal is and we always have that end in mind and usually we start rehearsal with a with a devotion and usually we devotion through a new song if it's a new song so we're all on the same page why we're singing the song so we're all invested into why we're singing the song why we think it's good for our congregation to sing the song and so that's kind of the the why behind what what we're doing in the worship band i still get nervous i i used to get a lot more nervous but a lot of times i'll get nervous before singing for worship and especially for playing or in the middle of a song, I'll think like, oh, I'm, I'm doing a terrible job here. <laughs> or like, I don't know how, I don't know how to play these chords well enough or whatever. So I just get in my head and I start to kind of freak out during the middle of a song. And then I, it sounds corny, but I have to like really think about how I'm not doing this for myself, I'm doing this to show glory to God to lead people in worshiping God together. And it's like, it always comes down to being too self-focused. So like once I can get out of myself, it's a lot easier. It's like, okay, that you didn't hit that note squarely. Like you move on from that. Right, exactly. And hopefully that will improve the performance because you're not thinking about yourself. You're not overthinking what you're doing. And part of my job with the worship band is like you said, Savannah, you said you always feel the pressure is to lessen that pressure, let you be able to worship, not give you more than you can handle, but still stretch you to to be able to do things that I know you can do that I think you will like doing at some point and to be able to serve in those in those ways, but also not to feel like a burden, to feel like a have to, because that's not that's not the goal. And that's not good for you. That's not good for our congregation. Yeah. Thanks, John. Sure thing. So we're talking about worship and the whole worship experience involved with that. Savannah, before you even kind of came on staff here at our church, I I reached out to you because I knew you were an artist. I knew you think very deeply about art in worship. And we were kind of doing some preliminary work with a graphic designer to put together a booklet to present maybe rough draft images of what we might want our worship space to look like at some point. And so I reached out to you and I said, Hey, Savannah, can you give me some images or maybe a couple paragraphs describing your ideal worship setting? I asked you to do it and you didn't send me anything. And so I called you, I called you and I said, Hey, Savannah, were you going to send me anything still? Is that something you have time to do? And you're like, Oh no, I'm definitely planning on it. I've just been thinking about exactly what I want to say to you. And then like a few hours later, you sent me an email and I'm going to read it. I'm going to read one of the paragraphs that you sent me and ask you to expound upon it because we're in a unique chapter in our young church's history where we are under contract to buy a building, renovate it, turn it into a church. And the question is, yeah, like, what do we want people to feel? What do we want people to know just based on 
on the architecture and the design of this space when it comes to how we worship and more importantly, who we worship in the space. And so I'm going to read this in full to you. It's probably going to take a minute and then I'm going to ask you to maybe unpack maybe some of the bigger concepts or ideas that you have here when it comes to church design. Okay. So when I asked Savannah to describe a worship space, here's what she wrote in an email. I love it. She said, this may be incredibly vague yet uncomfortably specific. I'm not sure. But I think something that feels like a church that's been turned into an Airbnb cottage could be beautiful. Stained glass without the high church feeling. A hearty wood that brings it down to earth. If there are statement pieces, maybe something simple, but with a slightly mid-century modern feel. I think it would be cool if it looked and felt like a place someone could retreat to on a hill or maybe in a Jane Austen novel. Less of a modern-day conference mountaintop experience vibe and more of a Quaker spiritual retreat vibe. Note, not a rustic farmhouse vibe. I think as a church body, we have a good opportunity of feeling like a home to people. It would really be cool to have a building that reflects that and have a space that looks like that and serves the community in that way. <laughs> um, I mean, just the description there is so clear and I wouldn't say it's uh, uncomfortably specific. I think it's refreshingly specific. Okay. <laughs> you still stand by all of that. I stand by all of that. Yes. I really do. When I hear it read back to me, I think I'm basically describing Bilbo's house. <laughs> <laughs> you might've sent me a picture of Bilbo's house along, along with this too. <laughs> Again, this might be me like, chasing down storybook things from my past, but it's just like, I don't know, the Quaker retreat and like the Jane Austen, like even the apartment that I'm in, like we live in this old 1800s apartment and it it feels warm despite, I don't know, being kind of drafty maybe. <laughs> I think I've expressed my feelings on a lot of the uh, more current church things. And I, I don't like the the gray and the dark carpet. It doesn't feel like a place where I would say how I'm really feeling. And it doesn't feel like a place where I'd be honest about what's going on in my life. And it doesn't feel like a place where I'd meet God. It feels like a place where I'd meet someone named Brad or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to all the Brads listening to this Sorry. right now, no, we, we apologize. <laughs> no, but I think what you're getting at is, is something that, you know, speaks so deeply to the idea of transcendence, the idea of connecting with that. And yet we live in a highly urbanized culture, right? Yeah. And where we live specifically is in a suburb of one of the most populated areas in all of our country, the Metro DC, Washington, Baltimore area. And we also live in a city that gave itself the self-proclaimed nickname like sometime in the 90s of the most historic city in the United States because of our just history involved in the Revolutionary War, pre-colonial times, the Civil War. And so you put all of that in a mixture and then you throw in things that churches think about 
historic Christianity and what we want to do in the time that we worship together. And what do you want to do architecturally in terms of art and design when you build and design a worship space like that? You're, you're putting all of that together in this conversation. And I, th- I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. I think it's, it's the reverence, like the stained glass windows, for example, there's that feeling of high church and reverence, but then the cottage feels accessible and it's home. So got to strike that balance. Yeah. And I mean, as I think about this, we're never going to build like a cathedral or or even a church from like the early 1900s. Like we're we're just not going to build those anymore. It's just not what church plants are doing these days (laughs) for a lot of practical reasons. So how can we communicate in worship what we want to communicate in worship through very practical, very approachable design? Just kind of make everybody watch Lord of the Rings, I think. (laughs) Now, is this a rhetorical question? It's a rhetorical question. It's an opportunity for Savannah to just further expound upon her thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen A Christmas Story? So, (laughs) nope. John, do you have something to say? (laughs) Heidi, you haven't seen a Christmas no, story? No, I'm sorry. How? That's my question. <laughs> just how have you not seen that? Do we want to get into this? I'm doing other things on Christmas. Wait, no, what are you okay. doing after this? <laughs> going to get my dog. <sighs> okay, but sorry. we'll have to watch it another time. There's something in a Christmas story where it's like this family that loves each other so much. And I realize, I'm sorry, I'm like so, over again, overwhelmingly vague, but uncomfortably specific. <laughs> This family that does love each other so much, and it's like, I don't know, like their kitchen kind of sucks. It's not like a super great kitchen. They're, this house is just, it's a nice house. It's homey. But, you know, if you were going to buy it today, it would be big time fixer-upper. It's You'd rip out all the carpet. You'd change everything. But when you find a new house today, like there's just no character. The walls are too perfect. They're too thin. The doors are too light. And I did grow up in like a 1904 farmhouse that had the original solid wood doors. Like you could, you could build a whole house out of just the doors that we had in the house. But just something that like, just feels real, like real wood, real materials that are from the earth that feel like something God created. And again, everybody kind of has different perspectives on what might be cozy because some people really like this gray trend and I it's nice it's clean looking but for me I just feel cold and I I don't know I, I miss the warmth probably one of my favorite comments of this paragraph is the less of a modern day conference mountaintop experience vibe and by the way there's hyphens in between all yeah. of those <laughs> words right there and then it goes on to say more of a Quaker spiritual retreat vibe and that one gave me pause just because I think of my preference my preference would probably be for as clean as possible, mm-hmm. as simple as possible. So kind of that mid-century vibe. But what goes behind maybe me skewing more towards the modern day conference mountaintop experience vibe is that it's safe, it's clean. But at the end of the day, I don't actually have to you know, show up to this. I can just kind of be here and then leave. And that that's kind of an inauthentic experience, right? Yeah. This isn't really real life. This isn't really real community. This is just us showing up to this super 
polished thing. And, and so why this, why, why your words resonated with me is while I might not really want anything, you know, Quaker spiritual retreat vibe, what I, what I do want to feel is, okay, I, I can connect here, not because of the building, but this makes me feel as though I can connect to the, to the friends and the real life people who are here. Yeah. And more importantly than that, there's a God who connects with us through his word and sacrament here. Yeah. And, and I go, okay, now we're on to something. Yeah. It's almost like that place in your childhood, like grandma's house on Thanksgiving or something that you can't, as an adult, you can almost never find your way back to because either they moved or your grandma passed away or all the cousins moved out. Like, it's just one of those things, like, how can we bring back that safety and that comfort and give people the opportunity to feel as valued as a child and have the faith of a child? Well, and I think what maybe is unspoken here, but you and I have talked about this enough that we're getting at is we're doing all of this while throwing out all of the like nasty red carpet from churches of bygone years, <laughs> yeah. throwing out all yes. of the terribly ugly felt boards and, you know, Terribly. Hey, don't knock. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're saying is like, is doing all of the, the things that are positive reminiscent factors while getting rid of things that are just churches, you know, refusing to think about the arts tastefully as we go forward. And that, and that's what kind of excites me about the opportunity that we have here as a church is to maybe, you know, make positive statements along those lines. What I'm hearing from you guys is that vibe that makes you feel safe, makes you feel comfortable and kind of tying back into our last meet the fam episode where Will Whiteside talked about vulnerability a lot in a place that you are willing to be vulnerable and you feel okay to be vulnerable. And I think that's really important. And, and that looks different for a lot of different people. So we, we each have our own idea of a space that feels like a place that you'd be safe, like you'd be comfortable. But I think the goal is to have people come and be real themselves, be vulnerable, be able to talk to their friends about real things and and get real scriptural guidance from God, hear the promises God has from, for you from the friends in your life. And I think that's really important. It kind of reminds me, well, like when Pastor Matt was talking about wanting to show up to the mountaintop experience. It feels clean. You can you know, step in, step out. You know, growing up, anytime like company's coming, then mm. you got to clean the whole house. And I can just remember being like, but mom, we live here. <laughs> <laughs> they know we live here and we have a couch and we own stuff. And sometimes we don't put it away. And so, of course, you know, I'd want the church to be clean and not have clutter, but we live here. We do stuff here. We have funerals here and it sucks. We have weddings here and it's beautiful. We do blood drives and whatever else. So something that feels livable. Well, you kind of alluded to it in just like all the things that we do there. We talked about it as a church this past Sunday. I'll open this up to not just Savannah, but John, Heidi as well. As we kind of turn the pages into this new chapter of our church history and, you know, God willing, get to have a permanent home here here in the community what are what are some of the hopes what are some of the things that you guys really envision with that i mean i'm looking forward to a place <laughs> that has our name on the side of the building so that we can say yeah i go to the way you should come on sunday or you should come to a small group or whatever and they'll say where is that and i'll say 
this is where it is. And it'll be the ways building. Yeah, that'll we had we had cool. a laugh the other day, Heidi, where when you do that often enough as a church that sets up on a Sunday, you're kind of like, where are we? Oh, well, we used to be in here. Now we're here, but sometimes we meet here and we actually hold events sometimes here. And then people kind of like gloss over and they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want people to, to be able to find us. <laughs> it's a big one. With a new building or a place that's our own, we talk about this all the time. The church isn't the building, but there are certain things that it allows you to do, ways it allows you to connect with community and certain conveniences, at least for my job, that I'm excited for as far as the sound system being set up and ready to go all the time, all of those things. But I'm excited to be able to be in the place and to, and to really open it up to community, to to our volunteers, to everybody to come in and live there. As far as just the serving thing, like I think about having stuff set up and people can come in and use this stuff and learn it and really get to know it. And if they have an interest in it, they get to dive in. Right now, we don't really get to do that because everything's locked up in a trailer. So I'm excited about those opportunities. I'm excited about the opportunities to get to have other people using the space, living in it as well. Like like you mentioned, blood drives or, or other nonprofits or community partners. Yeah, I think there's just so many possibilities. I'm excited about creative stuff we can do there as far as music and art and and just connecting with other people. So thanks for sharing that. Let's take the attention back to Savannah. Savannah, you, you, you've maybe alluded to it throughout our conversation here. Uh, you, I think, described yourself before as a bit of a professional or kind of a professional. The reality is that you are definitely a professional and John I've always, I always ask you about this because you two are someone who does professional music outside of the church how I should refer to you and others should I refer to you as a artist a recording artist or <laughs> you're just shaking your a head rock at... star for John <laughs> oh okay John's a, a rock, rock star, star. Yeah. That, just make it simple actually the other night my sons asked me like dad what's a rock star and <laughs> you showed you him know, a picture of me and I showed him a picture of me <laughs> <laughs> with with the long it. hair. That's it. That's it. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So Savannah, tell us about Darlington, the name, what it means, how you got the name, but also Darlington as a professional musician. Okay. Well, I am a band, I guess, called Darlington because I am just darling. And <laughs> a ton of darling. Yes, I am just a <laughs> ton of darling. <laughs> No, I, you know, this, this was actually very exciting for me. I was in New Jersey last weekend. I was in Asbury Park, which is where Springsteen is from. And we were like 10 minutes away from it. And the guy that we were staying with was like, do you guys want to go to Asbury Park? And I was like, yes. I didn't know we were right there. I was like, please, please, can we go to Asbury Park? Because I'm a big Springsteen fan. And when I was trying, originally I just kind of went by my name. Um, my middle name is Dawn. So I was Savannah Dawn. That was my stage name. But it felt time to rebrand myself, if you will. And this was probably like six years ago, maybe, maybe five years ago. And I, at the time, was getting counseling like out in Pittsburgh. I was living in the Johnstown, Pennsylvania area. So I would drive like an hour and a half every other Monday. And on my way back the one time, I was like, you know, I want like a term of endearment, I think, in my name. I want it to be something that's sweet, but also represents just like 
the other facets of my personality, maybe. And I was listening to the Born the USA album, which has the song Darlington County on it. And I passed a sign for the Darlington Fire Hall, which Darlington is an area near Ligonier in Pennsylvania. And it was just like, like when you're playing Mario Kart and you get the, the star. And just <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, we cruising now. So yeah, it all came together. And I was like, Darlington, that's it. It's a term of endearment. It's a Springsteen reference. It's a place near where I grew up. It's perfect. So, and it's just cool. Yeah, and you you were pretty subtle and humble in the reference there, but you just had Darlington is back from your first tour. Yes, I did go on my first tour, baby's first tour. It was four days, went all the way to New Jersey and back. So I started here in Fredericksburg, and then I went to New Jersey, and then to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and then down to like Southern Maryland, and then home. And it was great. I cannot believe the amount of cool people I met. I, I texted one of my friends and I was like, am I just surrounded by incredible people or is everyone God ever made incredible? And she just texted <laughs> back, yes. <laughs> so it was, it was a great experience. My mom recently gave me a dozen jars of homemade apple butter. And so I gave it to our host homes. And none of them knew what apple butter was. Do you guys know what apple butter yeah. is? That's Game crazy changer. that people don't know yeah. what that is. Wait, did you say you know what it is, Matt? Well, I know there's a lot of different butters, so I just kind of went along with it. But, you know, there's like, you know, there's like almond butter. There's, what's the stuff? There's cookie butter. There's, so I figured Cow if there's. Butter. Have you never had apple butter? I mean. I have a jar for you. You can take it home. I'm holding you to that okay, after yeah, this. Please, <laughs> please. So I don't. Yeah. I didn't even finish the last batch. Okay. Yeah, you all, uh, it's for all of you guys. She was like, you can give it to your friends. So, Wait. yeah, it's like basically you cook down apples in a crock pot and add spices. And it's just this delightful spread. You put can it put on it on bread. Yeah, any bread Toast. product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crackers. You can put it on Great. oatmeal. You can put it on oh, cottage cheese if you're disgusting. Whoa. You can put it Whoa. on <laughs> okay. another drive-by. <laughs> no shade on By bread. Way, I, I have a three no I have a three pound tub of cottage <laughs> cheese in my downstairs refrigerator right now that I go to regularly. Do you really? So I Dan's actually, a big fan. To visit yeah. it? Well I just realized how nutrient dense it is yeah. and so it's a great snack to go to. Yeah. For our listeners out there. So if you're yeah. looking to get more protein in your diet, there you go. Cottage Cottage cheese. Cheese. Put some apple butter on it and there it'll maybe be palatable. <laughs> I think it's palatable on its own, but now I will try it with apple butter. So bit of a side there. Tell us a little bit more Oops. about what's happening with Darlington and then maybe, or, or then maybe we can move Honestly, on there. Honestly, not much is happening yeah. with Darlington because of what just happened here. Okay. That's usually what happens with Darlington is I get very sidetracked by something else. So I do have three songs that I recorded with John, who's sitting hey, over hey, there. Hey. They've been pretty much ready for about 10 months, and I just need to say they're done. And just waiting for the day that I feel like they're done, I guess. Can I make a small request? Can you have another concert here in the area? And this time... Since I'm not on social media, Savannah, yes. can you tell me about the, the I was going to bring that up. I, that it's because a you're bit not of a on social media, you like, didn't I missed know. her concert Oops. here. In I am going to be honest. I blame Heidi. I really figured you would have told This is great. Because I figured you would have told Emily because you guys are like best friends. Emily was out of town. And I assumed she would have told Matt. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. And that was the problem. It was like the perfect storm of Heidi. Mm -hmm 
told Emily, but Emily was out of town. And so I would, I literally was sitting at home by myself with my family out of town and here Darlington was playing a concert in downtown Fredericksburg. So yeah, I was personal there. request. I think, you know, what would be great is if we had like a um, rustic Quaker cottage church that we could okay. kind of hold okay. this concert. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to use something else for the time being, but yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do another concert. Savannah, it's been a pleasure getting to have this conversation with you. And this podcast is called Meet the Fam because it's really a special opportunity that we don't get in whole group settings as we kind of have had a conversation about gathering for one another, get to introduce each other on a very personal level to our whole church family. So in a second here, I'll, I'll maybe give you the opportunity to say anything that you'd like to say to this, the way family that you've been a huge part of. But in closing, I'll say this before you get the last word, that since you joined here not too long ago, both you and your husband, Dan, who I know is listening in the next room or maybe a few rooms over, you joked at the very beginning about how, hey, it was just less than a year after you said, like, I'll never work for a church again that you did. But as I look back on the impact that you guys have had here, both with your enthusiasm to serve here and in big ways and in small, in ways that you are paid for because it's your job, because you're on staff here and, and in ways that you're just not, you guys have had a massive impact on creating the church culture here. And I say this to everybody who has graduated from our foundations class. I say, you have the opportunity here because we are a brand new church to get the start a church that you want to be a part part of and start a church that you want your friends to be a part of. And you guys have have really done that, whether you've done that consciously or not, taken those words and ran with them or just done that because here's what I think. That's just who you guys are and how you think about church and using your gifts, your talents and abilities to do that, to serve and give glory to God. It's really been a special thing. And I thank you guys for all of the work that you've done, but most importantly, all, all, all of you've done to build God's kingdom here. So Savannah, thank you for that. And with that, I'll turn turn over to you. Any last, any last words you want to say on your Meet the Fam episode? Well, I am very glad that we found this church and that we, because we kind of knew John. I'm so glad we gave it a chance because it has been... Like, honestly, the wounds from our last church. I remember Dan saying one time, like, this is going to take years to work through. And somehow it didn't really take years. Like, we, the way has been so healing to those wounds. It has been so affirming of, you know, the running the race, I guess. And it was exactly what we needed when we needed it. And just as such a perfect reminder of, how much God knows and loves his children and and will provide for us. So I'm very grateful for every Sunday I've been there, every Wednesday, every whatever else we've had, every movie. It's been it's been so good for me and Dan. And I'm very, very grateful. Well, thank you for being on here with us, Savannah. Yep. Thank you for joining us today. To get more content designed to connect you to Christ and to community, please subscribe or follow The Way Church wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can head to our website, 
thewaychurchva.com for more information.